Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, reporter in Chicago, and I will tell you right out, I am a man who likes to talk to a man or woman who likes to talk. This week we're talking to Mary Schmeek, the Chicago Tribune's Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. I'm a big admirer of hers personally and professionally. I really love what she writes, what she puts in the paper, and I really enjoy talking to her. This week's episode was a whole lot of fun. We went up on the ledge of Tribune Tower on this little outdoor balcony thing that they have near the top. I guess it's not technically the ledge. And we sat there and we chatted about her career. It was kind of fun because we were sitting on a table and we had to move at one point and the table kind of fell and I sort of slid down like I was on one of those seesaw or teeter tots or whatever it is that they're called. I bring that up uh, as a bit of housekeeping, which is that, for the most part, I think the audio is pretty good. There are a couple moments where the wind comes in and censors us. I think that in those moments, um, that's probably just Mother Nature trying to keep some mystery alive or something. The other thing is that after we recorded the podcast, Mary let me know that the Tandys, the primitive laptops that she talks about in the episode, might not have been quite as backward as she remembered. Uh, she let me know that they might have displayed eight lines of text instead of five. And here I go feeling like I'm spoiled by the iPhone. So that's kind of a, that's kind of a funny thing. But this was a real fun chat. Uh, I really loved hearing her stories about what it was like to file back in the day and how she learned to do what she does and, you know, sort of learn a little bit more about Mary. I think you'll enjoy this week's episode. And if you do, I hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes for the high price of nada. But for now, enjoy the talk. So this is kind of a unique place to do an interview. We're on a skyscraper ledge, right? Top of the tower. I guess uh, it's a really nice day. You know, you think about this, this probably doesn't look, well, the tower itself probably doesn't look very much different than it did. A century or so ago, not quite that long ago, it's not that old, but, uh, but everything around it has emerged. This used to be a skyscraper, and now it's just this puny little <laughs> building amid skyscrapers. Yeah, don't you feel, though, like you're, it's almost like being, because uh, the, the architecture is so different, it's like we're sitting somewhere that's out of place and it's out of way. time, yeah. Kind of the news industry, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> But so, uh, speaking of the news industry, uh, you are a columnist about town. You've uh, been doing this for a while, so I'm kind of glad we get to talk about it. How'd you get in news? Into newspapers? News. I guess it's newspapers. Well, I suppose I got into news uh, around sixth grade when I decided that my class needed a newspaper. Not that I read newspapers, but I decided my class in sixth grade in Macon, Georgia, needed a newspaper, and so I invented one on the ditto machine. Now, that age is a person. The ditto what, machine. Do you know what a ditto machine is? I have no idea. It was what existed before there were faxes, before there were Xeroxes. Um, the ink had a very particular smell. It was a way you could make copies of things. Um, I don't really remember how they worked, but you can Google it. Did it have a crank or something? I think it did have a crank, um, and it had this ink. People got high on Ditto machine ink. Loved Ditto. Cop- ditto copies of anything because you just put them to your nose and sniff them. Anyway, is that so? You're telling me you got into news to fulfill a a craving? Right. An, uh. an ink addiction, fresh ink addiction. What, uh, what were you writing in that paper? I have no idea. But it's something I'm sure I thought was clever, if not meaningful. <laughs> were you, um, was that a thing where you were always writing? I don't remember always writing, but I do have a memory of the... The first time that I remember thinking about writing as writing, as opposed to reading, was I think I was in fourth grade and we had to do an assignment about something amusing that had happened at home I have five young brothers and they were always pulling pranks 
that they thought were hilarious, and I did not. And they decided one day, you know, their ringleader, my brother Bill or Michael, to take all the fuses out of the fuse box in the house so that nothing electric would work. This is what boys do, right? Hilarious. So, I decided that this was the anecdote, not that I knew the word anecdote, I was going to write about for my paper. And so I wrote about how my brothers had taken the fuses out of the fuse box, and confusion ensued, and then I wrote the title, Fuse Confusion. <laughs> and I still remember looking at the paper, when I, my little ink pen, my fountain pen, and my tidiest handwriting wrote, Fuse Confusion on the top of this little essay. And I thought, well, that is fun, isn't it? And that's my first memory of thinking, oh, you could have fun with words. That is a really good way to discover that. Um, so, did they, do you know um, if your siblings had an appreciation for that? Like reading that, did you show it to them? Do you remember? I doubt that I did. I'm sure I showed my mother because my mother was a, a great reader and a wonderful writer. She had had a different life. Instead of having eight children, she she could have been a writer, and I knew that she would appreciate that. Uh, did you ever? Do you know? Um, did you know then that you could make a living at writing? Oh my God! Making a living is something that doesn't really cross your mind as a fourth grader. Frankly, making a living didn't cross my mind until <laughs> way longer than it should have. Um, no, but again, I remember teachers were important in, in the formulation of my idea that I might write in some public way. Mrs. O'Neill, seventh grade, wrote on one of my little essays it was either on if I had 24 hours to live or if I had a million dollars we had to write these essays all the time if essays and on one of them she wrote you certainly can write exclamation mark or you could be a writer one, one, one or the other and I just remember looking at that and going really? yeah I think she said you could be a writer and so the idea of, of being a writer not, not just that you can write, but oh, there is a thing called the writer that a person could be. And then I, you know, continued on with my adolescence, boyfriends in the pom-pom line, and student body government, you know, other things that had nothing to do with writing. You were a politician? Oh, I was uh, my homeroom president, and then I was the student body uh, secretary. Okay. Don't be meek, vote for Schmeek. is my campaign slogan. <laughs> uh, gosh, and you grew up in a... Your your early years were in uh, Georgia, right? Right. Um, you've written a lot, right, about um, about race and, and how that... Uh, you know, how about your experiences in the Deep South? It's the Deep South, right? Yeah. Um, Savannah, Macon, Georgia qualifies the Deep South, yes. But uh, did the um, do you ever think that your writing or your reporting is influenced by that too? I don't exactly know how to name or, or calibrate all the ways that growing up in the South um, shaped me, but I know that it shaped me hugely. It shaped a sense of language, rhythm of the language, the pacing of things, life stories. Growing up in the South in the 50s and 60s, little children were not really aware in any articulated way of race relations. You know, it was something that was around you. But children are children, right? Right. It was really only later, after we left the South. We left the South when I was 13. You know, and I had, I had come to be aware of things that were happening. And I, I was fortunate to have a couple of the best parents in the world. You know, who taught us well. Who taught us that what was going on. 
on around us was wrong. But it was, it was really many, many years later, particularly when I came back to cover the South from the Chicago Tribune, that I began to understand the place that I'd grown up. And I began to explore it as a reporter, to, to read about it, to go and interview all the old people, you know, the old uh, civil rights leaders, I met the most astonishing people, the people who have, you know, really been the, on the ground in Montgomery and in Selma and Atlanta and Memphis. And I started piecing together in my mind a place I'd, and time that I'd grown up in. You left the South before you were an adult, right? Yeah. So you came back, like, with a fresh perspective in some ways, right? Like, with new eyes. Almost like a different person when you leave somewhere and come back right. as an adult. Right. I mean, I was just I was almost fourteen, I think, when we left. I had just finished eighth grade, and then we moved to Phoenix in the early raw cowboy days of Phoenix. Hard to believe that now. We still count out. And there were actual cows. <laughs> you didn't have to go too far to find cows. Um, Find. Yeah, the Indian reservations were close. Uh, the river was close. I mean, all, all anybody who goes to Phoenix now would not believe what Phoenix was in those days. Um, it felt very old west. Anyway, so you know, I became very slowly westernized, but I was in shock, frankly, having come from Georgia, which was a settled, old place where people spoke beautifully, where manners matter. Uh, and all of a sudden, I'm in this raw place where the girls play tennis and say, fuck. And it's like, wow, where am I? <laughs> I cried for a year. And then I became a more westernized person. And then went to California to college. Lived in California for a long time. So by the time I went back to cover the South, I had traveled widely. I'd lived widely. You learned to say the F word? I did. I still kind of regret it. <laughs> I use it too much. <laughs> I could let go of that westernized part of me. Um, anyway, it was, it was wonderful. It was one of the great privileges of my life to go back to place I grew up to, that beautiful, complicated, tragic place, and revisit it, try to understand it, and try to write it. See, I don't know that anything about that. Would that have been when you were a reporter still? Yeah. I mean, and you're still a reporter, but before you were a columnist? Yeah. I like to think of myself still as a reporter. Um, yeah, I came to Chicago in 1985 as a feature writer and I hated being a feature writer I'd written a fair number of features and I started out a little paper in Palo Alto California and I wrote a lot of news but then you know, gravitated towards features and then went to Orlando Sentinel where I wrote mostly features magazine stories so I, I'd gotten a fe more feature-y bent, though I still did some news. When I got to the Tribune, and I was on the feature staff, I, I just, I was going out of my mind. I just felt, it was too isolated, insulated, that I wanted more urgency, I wanted more meat, and they asked if I would go down to cover the South. So the Tribune had that time had a fleet of national correspondents and a fleet of foreign correspondents. Nobody was even thinking that I'd grown up in the South when they asked me to do that. But the Atlanta Bureau had come open. It was one of those providential things that, if you're lucky, happens to your life. Um, one reason they asked me was that I, 
I traveled a lot at the time, just for my own pleasure. And whenever I would go somewhere, I would see a great story, a great news story. And I would call the news desk and I would go, you know, there's this really good thing going on in Phoenix. I could write the story. And they would say, well, but you're, you're a tempo writer. I said, yeah, I know, but I'm here and there's this really good story. So I, I did a few of those. And so they recognized that, A, I like to travel. And be you know I like the news enough, um, and that I could turn things around faster than feature writers were called upon. So they asked me to go to Atlanta, and I did. What were you writing about? In the South? Yeah. Oh my God, everything. Um, I was down there for five years, so uh, you know when there were the big breaking stories, you know the hurricane, this is the Cuban prisoners riot, and the Atlanta Fiddle Penitentiary and out in the backwoods of Louisiana, uh, the the big trials, Jim Baker, the televangelist and his wife, Tammy. You know, I covered all that. And in between times, I roamed around the South and wrote stories, a lot of them having to do with the evolution of race relations. Not just that, but I gravitated to those stories because that was the story, that was the news in the South. The civil rights era was not so distant, really. I mean, I think 1987 was only 20 years after what we think of, you know, the heart of the civil rights revolution. And... And so the people who had been part of that were still alive. Uh, the, the, the shifting of the ground was still happening in a somewhat obvious way. But it was also really important to me not to get trapped in the cliches of 1967. You know, I think a lot of times when people come from outside the South to write about it, they have an idea that got fixed in 1967 and it's difficult for them to see how the South has shifted and continues to shift since then. Well, I mean, you're talking about how an 87 isn't very far from uh, 67, 64 and obviously 2014 is not that far either. In the scheme of things, right? No, no, it's really not. But it's way farther than 1987 was, you know? Sure. Did you have a favorite story from your time down there? Favorite story? I perversely loved covering the Jim Baker televangelist trial. Charlotte, North Carolina. I can't even tell you why, but it's just the cast of characters and the weirdness, the madness of the of the televangelist empire. That do you even know who Jim Baker is? Is Baker the prostitute guy? Uh, with the I want to say Jessica Hong is that her name? I think that you know they all kind of fuse, but 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 his issue he wasn't on trial for that. Things getting a little fuzzy in my mind now, but but it was it was more about the financial fraud. The, the, the trial wasn't every day, Jim. And you know who Tammy Baker is? She was even more famous. Yeah, uh, I recognize her. Know, I, I recognize both names. Her mascara and uh, her uh, stiletto lucite heels, her tight little skirts, her round little figure. And she would just bustle in the court every day and sit behind the gems. Anyway, that stands out as a story that So you were in the courtroom? Oh, yeah. Had you, when you when you got sent, sent down to Georgia, was there, like, any change in terms of, you know, your features and now your news? Like, in terms of title or whatever? Because you're doing news, but were you still technically a features writer? Oh, no, no. I was, I was a national horse. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that's news. Yeah. But, um... You know, I was talking to someone, I talked to Pam Zekman recently, and you know, she was talking about how there was, and you know, she started 
before you did. Uh, but, you know, she was saying women got shunted into features desks back in that time. Uh, did you... Had you done news before being a national correspondent? I had done some news at my first job in Palo Alto at a little paper called the Peninsula Times Tribune. I had done that low-level news of you know, going to the Cupertino Planning Commission, the, the Los Alto, covered the Los Altos cops. You know, I had done news on that level. But I hadn't really, I hadn't covered courts. I hadn't done, you know, the, the, the beats that people often associate with quote-unquote news. But being a national correspondent, I think, takes a feature writer's temperament as part of the mix. I mean, you, you, have, you have to have a, a new sensibility and a sense of urgency and an ability to deal with those deadlines, which I still you know, <laughs> never really liked those deadlines. But I could do it at some expense to my nervous system. Sure. Um, so I'm lost in that thought. But what was the question? Uh, uh, did you have news experience? Yeah. yeah, so, you know, I had a minimal amount of news experience, and I, I honed my news experience on the job, being tossed into these huge breaking stories. Uh, I learned to cover courts by covering these celebrity trials. So I was always grateful when you know, there would be some nice local court reporter sitting in the room, and I could say, now, who's that? What's he doing? What'd he say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that happens sometimes, especially uh, when you're not quite sure of yourself yet in a new environment. You know, the... Are we... You know, did I understand that correctly type of well, thing? Well, you know, one of the things that I have learned as a reporter, you should never be afraid to look stupid. And we are afraid, Right. We always want to look like the most competent person in the room. But the truth is, you get better by admitting, I don't know what he just said. Do you know what he just said? And the chances are the person next to you will go, oh, I'm so glad you said that because I don't know what he just said either. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. But, you know, the willingness to... look stupid to admit what you don't know in order to find out what you need to know is really important so you did you start at a small paper in uh, California did you say yeah Palo Alto did you study it in school I had not studied journalism in college I went to a small college Pomona College there were no journalism classes fine by me I mean, I honestly think people are better off spending the bulk of their expensive education learning about things that are not specifically journalism. Um, There was a little paper there called The Student Life, and I co-edited it. I really have to put that in air quotes. I co-edited it with uh, another guy my senior year in college. But I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I had no real journalism experience. I didn't read newspapers, know how they worked. All I knew was that there were some things that interested me. I liked to write. That I liked to tell other people, you know, why don't you go out and see what's going on over there? The, you know. (laughs) Typical editor. Right. But, you know, the fundamentals, I think it's, it's very easy in journalism to get caught up with, uh, with refined ideas about, about journalism. But really, it's, it's at its base, it's, hey, what's going on? Oh, that looks interesting. Let me go find that out. Let me come back, write it up, try to write it in a way that would make people interesting. So I had, you know, those fundamental things going for me, but really nothing more. So that's all you need, though, right? Well, to begin, to begin, <laughs> as the motor, um, and then I 
I didn't graduate from college on time because I have an issue with deadlines. I didn't finish my senior project. But I somehow got a job. I hadn't applied to graduate schools because I didn't know what they were. I didn't grow up in a professional family. I didn't know. You know my dad was a house painter in his final incarnation. So senior year came around. I had no, I hadn't finished. I had no job in the works. I had a grad school to go relax in, be safe in. And somebody mentioned that there was a job in the Pomona College Admissions Office. So after graduation day, I walked up there and said, I hear there's a job. Can I apply for that job? <laughs> got an interview and they gave me the job. So for three years I was a Pomona College admissions officer. I traveled around the country, I went to schools, I interviewed kids and I came back and I wrote up the interview notes. And my boyfriend at the time pointed out to me, said, you know, this is basically journalism, right? College admissions? You're going around to places you're interviewing people, you're finding stuff out, you're coming back, and you're writing up the notes. And I loved to write those, the interview notes, <laughs> you know, the descriptions of the schools, you know, the, the beautiful blue of the mountains behind Sandia High School in Albuquerque, wherever it was. And I got a fellowship, went to France. And then I applied to journalism school just because I really didn't know what to do. I was in my mid-twenties by then, and I realized I got to get something together here. Okay. Were, you, were you anxious? No. Because, you know, I mean, I'm in my twenties. I know a lot of people in their twenties who could be in that kind of crossroads, you know, who are very anxious about it, but you were cool. I think there is more pressure quote-unquote young people, meaning you, now to figure out their lives sooner. I, I think I belong to a generation where there was less pressure to figure it out immediately because there was some belief that you lived in a society where you had some time to figure it out, and that you would figure it out. There's, there's a, an atmosphere now that people in their 20s are living in of people can't get jobs, people are not going to live at the standard that their parents lived at. I mean, whether this is all going to play out in the long term, I don't know, but, that, but that's, the, that's the conversation around being in your 20s now. And when I was in my 20s, so many of the people I knew, we, we took a few years to figure it out. People would go live in Argentina or Europe on a shoestring. I mean, I'm not talking about kids with trust funds. I mean, I had no money. But I didn't worry about it. Just thought, you know, you're going to roam around the world, you're going to see stuff, something will happen, something will come through. And then it did. I'm far more anxious now, believe me. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, especially when, once I found newspapers, the anxiety that exists for people in their 20s, well, for everybody now, for everybody not exist then. You didn't have to ask yourself, am I going to spend my whole career as a journalist? I didn't think that way. I never asked the question, but somewhere in the back of my mind, I think I just assumed that if I wanted to, I could. And because that knowledge was out there, you didn't have to ask the question. Does that make sense? I think so. I mean, you know, I don't, uh, I figure I can do journalism as long as I want, 
but you know you should have some kind of plans you know because it's a it's a it's a tough world out there but but see Greg I mean I think for you the business and it is a business it may be a calling it may be all those other high minded things that have drawn us to it but it is a business and the business is changing so much all the time now that whatever plan you might make I mean how could you make a plan you don't even know what it's going to be that's true that's why my plan is keep writing and figure it out yeah you know it's uh, nothing to get anxious over for me you know it's not like I have uh, huge responsibilities but yeah so that's uh, that's what it was like when you were there when you were young, you know, your 20s versus my 20s, kind of a different thing. And then uh, you went to France. Um, how long were you out there? I was there for about a year and a half. And then I came back because my same boyfriend told me I should go to journalism school. And he sent me the applications while I was sitting in Rennes, France. Filled them out half-heartedly. And then once I got in, I began to think, well, I'll go to school for a year. And then whatever happens will happen. Well, school is kind of a holding place, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a delaying tactic. I'm against it. Yeah. I mean, I was never an advocate but what it what journalism school did for me was it gave me that year to sort through some thoughts about how I might make a living because at that point you know it had clicked in I gotta make a living here and I'd like to do it in a way that allows me to live doing things I like to do. And it also, journalism school, taught me some of those basic skills that I just didn't have and didn't have a clue about. So it was, it was, it was a useful formation. Where'd you go? To Stanford. Stanford had a journalism school? Mm -hmm. Does it still? Uh, I assume it does. I, I mean, don't know. I know they do a big fellowship. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know yeah, which I, I one it is. I but. don't know. You know, I had applied to Berkeley and Stanford, and I got in both places. Berkeley was two years. Stanford was one. And I thought, why would you spend two years in journalism school when you don't even believe in journalism school? You know? It's like, right. So I picked a shorter program, which was, which was perfect. It did teach me some things. It helped me get some connections through them I got an internship at the Los Angeles Times for three months as the final quarter of the program and that's what sold me working at the Times? yeah I mean I had always thought I couldn't be a newspaper person I had to write too much you had to write too fast the writing wasn't very good too many people in the office how could you sit at a cubicle you know right all that stuff and then I went down to the LA Times and I was just so excited every day. I was just the kid and they would send me out all the time. Go do this. I'd go do it. And ride the bus. Go find a story. Go back and write it up. They were still on typewriters. It was in 1980 last big newspaper to shift from typewriters to computers. So the Chicago Tribune in 1980 was on computers. As far as I know, everybody else was. But the LA Times had decided, this was a legend, that they were going to have the best computer system in the world, so it was taking them longer to install it. 
So I had those three months that I otherwise never would have had, didn't have again, of working in an old-style newsroom where people are pounding away on typewriters. The noise is deafening. The guys were smoking. I mean, it's straight out of some movie. That was real? Yeah. Oh, oh, the fog of cigarette smoke. It would make you puke now. But then, it, it's just, it's what it was. You know, the noise, the smoke, the, the grumbling. Um, and then I got my first job at the little paper in Palo Alto, which, of course, was on computers. I never worked on a typewriter again. But I'm really glad that I had those three months of doing it the way it had been done for decades. You wrote on what were called books. So you had, I don't know, five, six uh, sheets of paper, each in a different color, uh, bound at the top, and you would type. And then when you were done, you would walk it up to the copy desk, and or the desk, the metro desk, and the editor on the desk, all of the men, would tear, well they would edit it first. These are all carbon copies. And then they would tear the sheets, each of them a different color, and some copy boy would come and take them and file each of the different colored sheets in a different place. place. You know, I know a guy who was a copy boy, uh, which I don't believe we have anymore. No. I've never met a copy boy. But I know a guy who started as a copy boy and learned to edit by taking the copy sheets and reading them before he took them from one place to another. So seeing what the edits were. Well, this is a lot of how I learned how to do newspaper writing. Because in the in the lulls, one of the, the editors on the Metro desk said to me one day, called me up, you know, lift his head and, and you sat it was like a schoolroom. it's different from, from the way the Tribune is configured right so the Metro editor sat at a long desk facing the reporters and oh wow he, he lifted his head one day and just did this thing with his finger you know like, get over here and I went up yes sir what can I do for you sir <laughs> um, and he said Here's what you can do in your in your free time. And he pointed to an old mail filing cabinet. And he said, go take the stories that have been edited and read the editing. So I would go through these files of edited stories. The, the editing's in pencil, right? Right. So, you know, circles around words that should be moved from here to there. Um, whole graphs or chunks of sentences excised, uh, big blocks of type, arrows, move this up, and I could see what the thought process was. And that really more than anything I've ever done taught me how to write. To see how things are edited, really, word by word. I wonder what the modern equivalent would be of that. I guess, uh, I guess you know, we have a program when edits get tracked, like on Microsoft Word, you know. But that's not quite the same thing, is it? But um, that's pretty cool, don't you think? That's kind of cool. It is. Like looking back on it. Yeah, I I love that I had that all the classroom lectures in the world couldn't couldn't teach you what you could see on those pages and you could begin to discern patterns. Oh, I see why. She just would never say that that way. Right. Was there a point when um, when did you get good at being a journalist? Or to put it in a way that doesn't, where you don't feel like you're boastful, because I'm not trying to get you to say that, but uh, when you became comfortable with yourself as a journalist. I think sometime during my 
to recognize that I could go into almost any situation and do what needed to be done. That doesn't mean the story was always great. It doesn't mean I didn't almost always feel sick about it. <laughs> I've never gotten over the sense of uh, uh, just a certain terror every time I write. Uh, Do you still feel it? Oh yeah, screwing someone. Terrified. Uh, but but I did, you know, somewhere into my Atlanta stand, which was five, six, seven years into being a reporter. I just began to believe. Well, this is the first interview I've ever done where I've slipped down a table. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's very cool. You're not me. Still in one piece. I didn't know uh, it would be such a raucous time, but, you know, on we go. So, um... It was as a national correspondent when you started feeling comfortable. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when I'd been writing features, I, I always felt comfortable as a feature writer. Because you had a lot of time, at least in those days. You could take a lot of time in the reporting, a lot of time in the writing. So I wasn't anxious as much then. But in terms of being able to get in and get out and get the story fast. Um, it was those years in Atlanta. How were you filing in those days? How would you file a story? <laughs> I traveled around a lot, but that was the nature of the job. We had radio shack computers. They were like the first laptops, but they were nothing like what we call a laptop today. TRS-80s, call them trash-80s, these terrible little machines. And they were about a little, little you know, big, bigger than a book, um, heavy. And the early ones had five lines of type, that, that, that like dotted type. It was a weird kind of digitized-looking type. So you could only see five lines that you'd written, and the type was weird. It was just a weird font. And it was a keyboard. And so you, you typed on that, and you had to keep scrolling down to see more than five lines. So you had to learn to hold the whole story in your head. And this was another amazing training device for me, to hold the story in my head. Because I've always been a printout person, love to print it out, see it all on the paper, you know, read it at yeah. And then to transmit it, you had these big rubber cups and you would take the phone and you would plunge one end of the phone this was when phones were shaped differently, even the landlines are now, and you would plunge the ends of the phone into the rubber cups, which were connected by a wire to the trash 80. And then you had some code, I forget how it worked, that you had to, to do. Often they wouldn't work with hotel phones because of something in the way hotel phone systems work. So you would have to go out and find a public telephone, which would not have a ledge. And you would have to balance the trash 80 while you're trying to get the phone in the rubber cups and then dial the phone. Well, that's, uh, it was primitive, Greg. That's one way that the news business is better today, probably, oh right? But this concept of holding the whole story in your head, uh, is that a thing where you sort of have to know the story you want to tell, like as a storyteller would, and then just tell it? I think there's, there's some truth to that. That, that it, it, it did require cultivating a sense.
you weren't riding that way. You can meander around a little more. I think it, just something about that process made me learn to structure in my head. Which is not to say you don't you know, continue to structure once you've got it down there, too. But to structure in, in, in my head first, because it was just too much work to try to change anything, you know? Sure. So, you are um, a columnist now, right? Mm-hmm. That's the official term. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, I mean, you write columns, you write... I always prefer the verb to the, to, to the noun. You write columns I versus write columns. you're a columnist. Right. Uh, you write columns... And you, was there ever, when was the point that you thought you might want to be a columnist? Or you might become a columnist? I had written a column in Orlando, which is part of the features mix that I did. It was a column called Women. And there was a column called Men. This is the 1980s when this is what people did, right? So, so I'd had a, a taste of, of what it was to you know, put yourself out there in the first person with an opinion, with a strong viewpoint. And when I got to the Tribune, I still remember sitting down with the features editor, a woman named Koki Deshawn. Koki was the queen of the Tribune. She pretty much invented feature sections, as we know them. And far and away the most powerful woman at the Tribune, where they were not very many powerful women. And I sat down with Koki, and she said, you know, well, what would you like to do in, in the long term? And I said, well, I'd like to write a column. And she leans back and gives me the evil eye, and she says, yeah, well, you and everybody else. And at that point, I thought, well, I guess I'll never be writing a column. And then I stopped wanting to write a column, especially once I got to Atlanta. I discovered how much I liked the grit. Not not so much of, of news. I almost hate the word news, but but of just real stuff, as opposed to the fog of opinion. Opinion that isn't rooted in actually going out and learning anything. It's just kind of perusing what other people have written. It just stopped being of interest to me. I liked to go out. And I also realized that my opinions, which were very forceful in my late 20s, I knew everything. You were one of those? <laughs> well, I don't think anybody would actually have pegged me that way, but, but you know, <laughs> I had forceful opinions. Sure. And the more I was a reporter the more I realized how ignorant I was, how ignorant we all are. How, how could you have an opinion about this thing that you did not report? And I would see, you know, I'd be out on these major stories, and then I would see people opinionating on them, and I would think, you are insane. You do not have a clue what you're talking about. You weren't there. You didn't see it. What? Did you read a, a story about it? You don't know what that reporter left out. I know what that reporter left out because he didn't have space. He didn't have time. You know. But I just I realized the perils of opinionating as a life. And so I stopped wanting to do that. And then. Someone at the Tribune called me one day and said, would you like to come write a column in the Metro section? And my first thought was, not really. I liked being out and about. I liked not being in the office. And also in those days, 
people who are national and foreign correspondents thought that going to work for Metro was kind of a step down, right? You know, why would you come off the national or the foreign staff to go work for Metro? Right. Now I think it's the smartest thing I ever did for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, but but it just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the direction that people moved in. But I thought about it for like a day, and then I thought, how could you say no to writing a column in the city of Chicago? That's insane. But I'd only lived here for two years. (laughs) It was scary to me. And so what I decided, you know, is I'm going to come in and I'm going to approach it the way a national correspondent would approach it. Not claiming that I know everything or much of anything, and just going out into the city and trying to get to know it, and formulated. There had not been on the Metro page a column that was what I would really call a column that allowed the writer. who was the Metro editor at the time, who went on to become editor, you know, she and I sat down and discussed this, and I said, well, you know, it would be important to me that this be allowed to be a real column. That, you know, the whole toolbox would be available. I'm not talking about just sitting back and opinionating, but... Opinion writing isn't important. It is. You know, people do need opinions. And people want to read opinions. But I don't think partly just to, you know, sustain something three days a week for 22 years. I'm sorry. No one has that many opinions. No one has that many grounded opinions. Sure. They may be offering you opinions that often. It's just the human brain cannot absorb the world sufficiently to have three grounded opinions a week for years. Well, you know, uh, it's funny you say that the three year, three days a week, twenty two years thing. Because earlier you mentioned something about not liking deadlines, right? Which I don't think anybody likes deadlines, although we need them, a lot of us. But um, I smiled because I thought to myself, um, you know, you've got three deadlines a week. It's a, that's a lot of deadlines. Or maybe it's not. Do you think no. it's a lot of deadlines? Oh. It's hell. It's hell. Sometimes I step back and I think, what have I done of all the things that, you know, I would not have chosen for myself in this life? <laughs> deadlines would have been right there. I mean, I never finished a paper in college on time. I was notorious for not being able to meet the deadline. 
but I also, on some instinctive level, I think, recognize that without a deadline, I was never going to finish anything. That's part of what newspapers have given me. When you write a column, um, how soon before your column is due do you know what you're going to write? Is it like the morning of? It's usually the morning of. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting life. But. Yeah, it's not good for the nervous system. You know, um. Do you have a favorite type of column you write? Because you, you have a collection of columns. Um, even the terrible things sound beautiful to me now. Is that Even the terrible things seem beautiful. Seem beautiful to me now. Um, which I would recommend to everyone. And I'm not saying that because we're sitting next to, in front of each other. I mean, I actually think it's a great book of columns. But really enjoy I like I like stories where you report you know columns where you you know very well reported columns but it's part of the mix you know I mean I, I really think that sustaining a column for a long time has to do with finding a mix and what I've learned is that different people respond to different kinds of columns sure know? so there are people who you know, really like the forty columns. Here people um, would much rather, you know, read more personal columns. I like those too. Um, you know, so people, I, I kind of feel that as, as a columnist, again, not all columnists are the same. Not all columns are intended to do the same thing. So when we talk about columns, the word columnist is like the word people. Well, it's not a really specific thing. But I think of it partly as having a conversation with your readers that is like having a conversation with your friends and that you don't want to talk about the same thing all the time. Right? Right. You talk about a little of this, you talk about a little of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, that works. That works for some people. Or it's usually better for men than it does for women. Uh, people seem to have far higher tolerance for the cantankerous male than they do for the cantankerous female. Which is not what keeps me from being cantankerous. <laughs> what were you writing in your earliest columns, in the women column, in... Orlando. Hmm. Boy, that's Do you a remember? Really good question. I should have asked that earlier. I mean, some of them were quite serious, but um, I, I, I'm having trouble re remembering what they were. I mean, a couple of the lighter ones I remember. Was, I remember writing at the age of 28 how terrible it was that women would ever try to hide their age and I heard from a lot of women in their 50s and 60s It's really easy going, hey, I'm 28, I'm 28. <laughs> Look, everybody, 28. I'm not embarrassed to be 28. Uh, and then one that I look back on and I cringe a little bit too was I, I wrote one that um, was about how the National Organization for Women had become completely irrelevant. With no acknowledgement 
of what those women in that organization had done to make life better for the 28-year-olds among us. So, you know, now, I don't even think people would, would write that column because we're so far beyond, which is not to say that things are equal for men and women, but in the same way that the civil rights era was still very close when I started reporting it. The women's movement was still very close. The early women's movement. People must have been pissed at you for writing that column. Well, the other 28-year-olds go, right on, Mary. (laughs) Now has nothing to say to me, but, you know, the older women in the readership who had actually been active trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. Yeah, they weren't happy. And I get it now. <laughs> so I get it. So, um, 2014, Mary Schmeek is not a fan of 1980s Orlando Sentinel Mary Schmeek. No, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, you know, you, you learn sure. as you go along. And that's part of when you're 28, you tend not to take into account the world that came before you. You don't know it. You know your world, and you have opinions about it based on the world that you know. It's very difficult to know what you didn't live through. But I think one thing that happens as you get older is that you become aware that younger people don't know what you've lived through. And then it makes you think about how you, at that age, didn't understand the world that you had been born into. You know, everything is the now. National Organization for Women's Sense, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, I just I just look back, and I, I think you know, anybody does in the middle of their lives, and they realize what they didn't know when they were younger. And you know, maybe cringe just a little bit at the certainty they felt. <laughs> Looking back on your career, I bet people ask you this all the time, but uh, what are you proud of in your, of your life in journalism? Proud of um, that I'm still doing it. I'm still doing it with energy and eagerness. I mean, that's part of it. I love having told the stories of so many people. It's pretty humbling in its way, isn't it? And obviously you've told the stories of a lot more people than I've told, but I've told a lot of stories too. And, uh, you know, when you, if you think about that, that's pretty remarkable sometimes. The amount of people that have talked to you and told you things that sometimes very uh, deep things, profound things, hard things. And how, you know, the stories they tell you have amplified your own life, your own understanding of life, and how the ability to transmit those stories to other people has, with some luck, opened up the minds of people who read the stories to little by little a larger view of life, of how other people live, how other people think. A long time ago in Orlando, when I was still very actively teaching myself how to write uh, a program of uh, index cards that I used for stories and I read an essay by a guy named Bill Blundell. I think that's how you say his name, William Blundell. 
who went on to become a, a writing coach. And he worked for the Wall Street Journal. And in this essay, he, he said something that I still remember, you know, marking up in yellow marker. He said, I'm in the business of connecting Americans to each other. He had been one of those Wall Street Journal page one feature writer guys. And I just thought that's a wonderful way to put it, you know. I'm in the business of connecting people to each other. There's other ways to define this business. But that's a good one. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do it? Email me. Never call me. <laughs> do not pick up my phone. Uh, mshmeek at Tribune.com. I really appreciate you taking some time to come out here and sit on the ledge with me. Thank you.